0: Whether you're a Barack Obama, whether you're a Joe Biden, whether you're a Donald Trump, these are people who, for better or worse, want to be, need to be, in the
1: public eye. And that's a very important thing for all of us. Welcome back to El Podcast. Today's guest is David Garrow, a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, scholar, and historian, and is the author of the book, Rising Star. The Making of Barack Obama, which is today's topic on our podcast. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today. Certainly. So your book, Rising Star, is over 1,000 pages long. It took you over eight years to research and write. You interviewed over 1,000 people. I believe you said about half of those were in person. And you even interviewed... President Obama himself, and you met Joe Biden on your way to interview Obama. I mean, that just sounds like such an intense process. Where do you even start? It just seems so mind-blowing to even think about this process. It's a
0: very draining, exhausting thing to do a big book. I learned that back in the 1980s, doing Bearing the Cross, my big biography of Dr. King, then i did a big book on roe v wade and the origins of the idea of abortion being a constitutional right liberty and sexuality and both in the 80s and the 90s we didn't have the web we didn't have email but you were scrounging for folks phone numbers and telephone and snail mail was what we had. in some ways with the rise of the web researching a book like writing rising stars is easier Because if you're looking for all of Barack's Harvard Law School classmates, uh, you can find almost everyone that went to Harvard Law School in a web search. But when you're looking for people that lived in public housing on the far south side of Chicago in the mid-1980s and have pretty vanilla family names, that's a little harder because community folks don't show up on the web like Harvard Law School grads do. But I made the decision in early 2009, right after the inauguration, to start doing something comprehensive, at least on on Obama's Illinois years. When I first read Dreams from My Father in early 2008, Barack's memoir that was first published in 1995, as a historian, I realized right away that this was not a work of history because he's using pseudonyms for people. He acknowledges that he's creating composite characters. So my initial curiosity was on finding the real people whom he'd worked with in his community organizing years on the far south side of Chicago, 1985 to 1988. And so when I first started going to Chicago in 2009, I was living in Britain at that time, it was leading the community group people that was my initial focus. But before long, I realized, too, that all of Barack's years in Illinois politics when he was in the Illinois State Senate down in Springfield, the state capitol, that there hadn't been any really uh, truly thorough, even journalistic profiles of those years either. So that's when I resolved
1: to, to really do something full scale. What were some of the most surprising things that you found out when you're researching this book? It seemed like for you, the most interesting part was his era between when he went from New York City to Chicago before he went to Harvard. But what were some of like the most fascinating things that you found out, at least maybe personally to you?
0: I'd give two examples. You just alluded to Barack in his memoir, Dreams from My Father. Gives this long rendition of when he puts all of his worldly possessions in his new but ancient used car to to drive to Chicago for the first time. When he has to stop up here in western Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh at some random motel. And the motel owner is telling him, you're going to be a community organizer. That's a waste of your time. Go into broadcasting. It sounds like you've got a good voice for radio. In Barack's telling, and he's gone back to this conversation several times beyond just in the memoir, it made me curious, where was this? And thanks to one of our law librarians here at Pitt Law School, where I used to teach, we actually tracked down the motel owner. Mark, the law librarian, looked in the Pennsylvania property records, found who owned the motel. I searched around for phone numbers, left a few voicemail messages. And found this guy, Robert Elia, charming guy. And just listening to him on the phone uh, for the first five or 10 minutes, it's immediately clear to me that this is indeed the character whom Barack is remembering and challenging him back then. It was a quite magical moment. Then in a more serious vein, meeting Barack's best friend from his years at Harvard Law School and, and the years after Harvard Law School, Rob Fisher white guy, five years older than Barack, had been an economics professor at Holy Cross for a number of years before deciding to go to law school. They were inseparable buddies at Harvard Law School, 1988 to 1991. And during the the third year of law school, 1991, uh, they co-authored a a more than 200 page book manuscript uh, on, on policy issues. Um, And Rob found the the first half of that manuscript in his basement uh, soon after the first time that we talked. Uh, And then a few months later, his mother found the other half of of the typescript uh, in their family home down in in Southern Maryland. The hundred pages plus of that that Barack drafted on the best way for progressives to deal with race politics, written in the spring of 1991, uh, it's a fascinating document. There's been a long New York Times piece done by a younger historian friend of mine, Tim Shank, maybe eight or nine months ago now, after I first featured it in Rising Star. But there was so much of Barack's life before the presidency that the campaign journalism had just not
1: even begun to thoroughly interrogate. Your book, Rising Star, was published in 2017, which is six years ago, but it seems like It's been in the media and just got popular recently. What's the reason for this? All of the new attention is because of a very long, long interview uh, that David
0: Samuels, uh, a well-known writer, did with me that went up on Tablet Magazine, tabletmag.com, about two weeks ago now. And Samuels had a, a very strong interest in Barack's evolution and particularly Barack's transformation during the community organizing years in Chicago. When Rising Star first came out, it made the New York Times bestseller list briefly. The Washington Post named it one of the 10 best books of of 2017. But by that time, we were already into the Trump presidency. Barack had pretty much disappeared from the daily news. But I know very well, going back to my big book on Dr. King 35-plus years ago, you write books like this for the long run to be still be read 25 or 35 years down the road. It's not a matter of how many copies do they sell in the first three months or, uh, uh, you know, how many TV news shows do you go on? You know, I've been doing this 45 years now. My first book on the Voting Rights Act came out in 1978. Mm. It's still in print from Yale University Press 45 years later. So I've been so fortunate enough to be able to take a sort of very long historian's long view of how to
1: appreciate these things. It seems like in preparation for this that a lot of the other interviews I I saw focused on Obama's letter to a girlfriend in 1982 about homosexual fantasies, but... I mean your book, except it's a thousand pages, you cover basically his entire life from being born in Hawaii to living in Indonesia to back to Hawaii, basically being raised by his white grandparents and then going to LA and going to Columbia and Chicago. But people have kind of focused on this letter from nineteen eighty-two.
0: The passage in question, it's it's a letter that Barack wrote to his first girlfriend, Alex McNair, in November of eighty-two. Alex held back that one paragraph when she let me read all the letters initially. And so that that language is not in the hardback of Rising Star. But then in 2017, Alex sold the letters commercially and they ended up at Emory University in Atlanta. And Emory wouldn't let anybody make copies of them, take pictures of them. So I had one of my oldest academic friends, a professor at Emory, actually go into the archive and Copy out the missing paragraph just because I knew roughly what it was. And so we added that language to the paperback of Rising Star, page 113. But again, it's about three or four sentences out of a big book. And he's 21 years old when he writes that. I don't think it's news that the vast majority of human beings have fantasies. To me, as a historian, someone telling me, oh, you can't see that paragraph, of course makes me want to see it when it does become available. But in the long arc of
1: Barack's life, that letter is not particularly notable. Like I mentioned before, your book originally was published in 2017, Rising Star. And the New York Times and some other papers are critical about it. But now it seems you know we're six years removed from that. And former President Obama is hanging out at Martha's Vineyards. He got like three mansions now. He's hanging out with billionaires and kind of the glitzerati, and it seems like people's kind of perception of him over that last six years has really changed. You couldn't be critical of him, and now it seems like it's acceptable. It's
0: been disappointing to me, and in, in many respects, politically on to the left of Barack. Once upon a time, back in the 1980s, I was a member of Democratic Socialists. I've donated to Senator Sanders in the past. It's been disappointing to me that, that not only post-presidency, but when they were still in the White House, that they have gone this sort of celebrity billionaire route of hanging out with, you know, Jay-Z, Beyonce, Richard Branson. My colleague, Kai Bird, a fellow historian who's been in the news lately because he's the co-author of the Oppenheimer biography that the movie's based upon. Kai also has written a biography of former president Jimmy Carter. And Kai made the, point to me six years ago when he was hosting a big event in Manhattan for me that Obama had the choice to to go the Jimmy Carter route. Carter wasn't a terribly successful president, but his post-presidency was just superb. All sorts of humanitarian volunteer commitments. And there's no question, I think, that Carter's life after the presidency is a more notable human achievement than what he did as president. And Barack could do that. Carter spent years building houses for Habitat for Humanity. And unfortunately, Lee Obama's not chosen that path. Um, Even what I was still doing interviewing in Chicago in 2012, 2013, by which time they were into the uh, second term of the presidency, I had numerous black Chicagoans who had known them back before they became famous. Express disappointment to me, especially about Michelle, whom they proudly view as a sort of exemplar of working class of Southside Black Chicago. Michelle came from very modest family origins. They always thought Michelle would remain true to who she was, even if Barack didn't. And so there are real regrets among people who knew them way back when. And there's hardly anyone from their lives before 2003 or four whom they're still actively close to, other than perhaps one or two of Barack's once upon a time high school
1: buddies from Honolulu. In a thousand page book, it's hard to maybe summarize it to a very short paragraph, but you can break it down to some themes. And one of the themes that at least that I interpreted from reading the book was that Barack, when he went to Chicago after New York, that's when he figured out that he wanted to run for president. And then every decision at that point, even from who he was dating, was geared toward making this presidential run, including his first big move, which was going to Harvard instead of going to Northwestern on a full scholarship. Do you think he was basically calculating and and planning this as far back as right after his undergrad? Yes. Or not right after the undergrad, but during
0: uh, by, by, the, by the end of his time uh, as a community organizer in, in 1987, 88. Um, and you, you summarize that quite well. Harold Washington who was the mayor of Chicago when Barack's working down on the South Side. First black mayor of Chicago ever, and a larger than life presence, a big guy. He dies very suddenly, very tragically, of a heart attack when he's in office. But Barack was frustrated as a community organizer and saw what a a seemingly huge presence of the elected mayor of the city was. Washington had a law degree, had gotten elected to Congress before he became mayor. And so Barack sort of had this Harold Washington example in his mind. You know, get a law degree, and that's the opening for a political career. You can achieve more through a political career than doing a community group. And you're quite right. I mean, he wanted the, the gold star... Of going to harvard northwestern is a certainly a top 15 law school then and now um but also barack's father who abandoned him as a very young child barack's father when he left barack and his mother had left them to go to harvard now he never finished his phd he sort of got pushed out of harvard i think in in clearly discriminatory terms he was from africa from kenya this is you know 19 you know, 64, 65. So I think the echo of his father's failure was there in the back of Barack's mind, too. But at Harvard, Barack was a phenomenal success. I interviewed probably over a hundred people who were at Harvard Law School along with him, many of his professors, too. And almost without exception, Everyone can remember Barack from like the first week or two of classes, that he was this, not just visible, but verbal, memorable voice, clearly among the brightest people in the class. He ends up being elected president of the Harvard Law Review in 1990, first African-American. That got news coverage of its own in the New York Times and the Boston Globe. And so just as Barack had hoped, Going to Harvard, getting this prestigious post, indeed was this, you know, sort of lifetime gold star on your forehead going forward. He had his choice of law firm jobs in Chicago, purposely took one with a smaller firm that did civil rights law rather than the big corporate Sidley in Austin that he uh, worked at in a summer job. And he's got his eye on getting into Chicago politics right from the first day when he's leaving Harvard. And so indeed, his trajectory was a very conscious
1: one from at least the fall of, of 1987 going forward. Today, I think Democrats are more critical of Obama than Republicans. The Democrats have were kind of disappointed. I think that you said that he kind of had a, an underwhelming of presidency but it it seems like of course the republicans didn't vote for him i don't think they really had expectations but it seems like the ones that did the people that voted for him are super let down and then of course what we mentioned before now with him hanging out with these billionaires and all this stuff but even after his presidency people were let down by him
0: the level of expectations that folks had if you think back to the images of election night november 2008 with that huge rally in grant Park in downtown chicago and even in the inauguration, which ended up being a sort of massive scene, um, given the emotional expectations that, that were created those two days, I think it's very difficult for any presidency to live up to those. And the intensity of far right hostility towards Barack, particularly the sort of looniness about where was he born, I think that created a, a negative climate. And the Obama White House was, in my judgment, way too slow to take the craziness with the degree of of seriousness that they should have. They could have knocked down the the birth certificate issue much sooner than they did. They, They held off on doing that because, understandably, they thought this was sort of nutty. But as we've seen for too many years now, There's a lot of nuttiness out there in U.S. politics, and it's better to confront it than pretend it's not happening. I think, too, that the Obama administration ended up with a much more challenging international situation than they anticipated. And there were a lot of disappointments there. In 2014, when the Putin dictatorship first seized Crimea and then the eastern Donbass, parts of Ukraine, The Obama administration response was not as strong as we now know it It should have been. Similarly, the Obama administration was very slow in realizing that the Chinese communist leadership in China poses a, a real regime danger to us too, and particularly to the democracy on Taiwan. And I think what's most notable, certainly to foreign policy people with the dictatorship in syria using chemical weapons against its own citizens uh president obama had said that that any such practice would would be a red line that the u.s would do something um and he backed out. he didn't do anything um and so consistently uh nowadays uh whenever you see commentary about about the foreign policy record of the obama presidency
1: uh it's pretty critical what you're saying right now reminds me of was it Uh, Sheila Yeager, one of his ex-girlfriends, who basically said that Obama lacked courage in some of the decisions that he was making where he was putting on this performance. And what you're just mentioning, he was lacking courage to make those decisions. Sheila became
0: a very tough critic of Barack. And Sheila is a a quite distinguished U.S. scholar of the Koreans. She's a professor at Oberlin College now. They lived together in in Hyde Park, Chicago, for almost all of Barack's community organizing time. It was a very close, very intense relationship. She was half Dutch and half Japanese. She doesn't identify as white. Her grandparents had been, in the Netherlands, had been heroes of the Holocaust in trying to save Jews. They're memorialized in the famous Yad Vashem site in Israel. So Sheila comes from a family background that has really demonstrated courage in a very difficult situation. And Sheila, just like Barack's other two girlfriends, Alex Mahir and Genevieve Cook, none of them were anyone's wallflowers. They're strong, memorable personalities, as with Michelle Obama. And I don't think it it would surprise anyone that someone in their 20s has has
1: a series of, of different girlfriends over the course of roughly about a decade in, in your book you're talking about when obama was teaching at the university of chicago and he spilled like, i think a pack of cigarettes fell out of his backpack or whatever and it's interesting in 2008 I, I lived in denver when they had the 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 dnc going on and obama was at the place i was working at and he would be in the alleyway on these smoke breaks. It was pretty frequent. The people, were like, you cannot take pictures of him smoking. Like, the secret or whatever, like, the security will come over there and take your phone away. But I was, like, just kind of chuckling. I'm like, he's always smoked like four packs a day. But it was interesting. The reaction was like, they looked up to this guy. Then all of a sudden, the pack of s- smokes falls out. And they're like, oh, that was my hero, you know? Like, <laughs> that,
0: that, that's a very good example to bring up, Jesse. And it's something I can frankly say from, My three conversations with him at the White House in 2016, it's something he's exceptionally sensitive about. There's just no question that he was deeply embarrassed at being addicted to nicotine. He started smoking back in high school in Hawaii. Both of his grandparents, with whom he was living in this modest little high-rise apartment in downtown Honolulu, both of his grandparents were heavy smokers. And that's something that continues for him. Uh, Sheila Yeager uh, described it to me when they're living together in Hyde Park in the 80s. His best friend, Rob Fisher, talked to me about it during the the Harvard years. Michelle Obama was trying to get him to quit after they married in the early 90s without success. And he's smoking a lot when he's down there in, in the state legislature in Springfield in the 90s. Now, ostensibly, once he's in the White House, he quit by re- relying on whatever nicotine-flavored gum there is.
1: I'm not 100% convinced of that. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would say you're you're correct on that. If you were to summarize your thousand-page book to someone that was just like, "Hey, you know, you wrote this biography of Obama. How would you, in your own words, sum this up?" I'm curious on how the person that wrote this massive tome. In what you'd focus on i think pretty much up through all uh the
0: pre-us senate years barack is a very impressive and consistently very appealing very likable person even when he goes into electoral politics when he's down there in springfield the state capitol in the illinois state senate he's a superb state senator He's actively working with conservative Republicans who are running the place. He's socializing with them, playing cards, going out drinking. For someone who's a young minority Democrat, he has a really significant policy impact in Illinois state government during those years. In 1999-2000, he made the mistake of challenging a well-known incumbent Democratic congressman, Bobby Rush, in a majority black district on Chicago's south side and lost really bad, hardly got 30, 31% of the vote, and was clearly humiliated by how badly that went and by how the opposition essentially portrayed him as not black enough. And in the wake of that loss, I think Barack became much more needy of, of success, needy for victory. And so in the run up to making a long shot U.S. Senate campaign in 2003, 2004, he's trying to position himself in more calculating ways, successful ways, but he's already a more calculating political figure then than he had been since, say, seven or eight years earlier. Um, He stands out in that U.S. Senate primary. For his intense opposition to the Iraq war, to committing U.S. forces overseas. And that really brings him a lot of liberal democratic support from white progressives in and around Chicago. And that contributed significantly to his surprise victory in the democratic primary, which then lifted him to the famous uh, 2004 democratic national convention speech, keynote speech that he gave, where he declared that America is not divided between red states and blue states. It's ironic to look back to that speech now in which he was so expressly anti-partisan, saying that we as Americans are not fundamentally divided by partisan identification, and then look at the Obama presidency which turned out to be quite rather starkly partisan, I think much more than
1: Barack had imagined would would ever be the case. It seemed like when they were younger, Michelle was the star. Barack actually made a lot of his kind of contacts from Michelle, and then all of a sudden, Barack sort of surpassed her.
0: Michelle was a great presence. Barack was extremely fortunate to end up with Michelle. Um... During their years, from the early 90s up through 2003, they're living in a modest condominium there in Hyde Park, a a row house. They've got lots of good friends. And there's no question that in those social circles, Michelle was a, a more spontaneous, more outgoing presence than Barack. Barack was often off in Springfield. Michelle's having to do the vast majority of raising their two daughters by herself. Michelle was not happy about Barack being a politician and early on was not supportive at all and always thought it sort of outlandish that he had this notion that he'd one day be president. But when he won the U.S. Senate seat in 2004, 2005, for the first time, he's actually living up to these claims that Michelle had previously always found unbelievable. And then lo and behold, he becomes president. So if you're Michelle and you've spent the better part of 15 years thinking that this is all a pipe dream, and then voila, within the space of hardly four, four and a half years, it all comes true, that's going to
1: set you back some. I found his whole book deal interesting where he had my dreams of my father were basically he got this book deal, I think you said it was for $120,000. He had all this other stuff going on, didn't really have time to write it. And then basically he had to pay back the advance. Then he goes to Indonesia for two months, writes the, the book. And I think it was, was it, uh, Rob who basically was like, hey, make it more about yourself And it's, and then sold it to another book company. But the whole journey of that book is quite interesting. Several years after Rising Star came
0: out, interesting character named Chuck Johnson, well-known in some circles. Chuck had ended up buying a typescript, one of the original copy of the original typescript of Dreams from My Father, from Barack's estranged Kenyan brother. Had it since 1994, 1995. And so when I acquired that typescript, I wrote a four or five-page magazine piece for the critic of a well-known British magazine, analyzing the differences between Dreams from My Father as published, as you can get the finished book now, and this typescript. What were the differences? And a number of the pseudonym characters in the published book still have their real names in this typescript. And so it's a nice, for me as an exceptionally thorough historian, that little piece, it's on my webpage, davidgarrow.com. That piece is a little bit of a follow-on to Rising Star in trying to lay out this further evidence of how the actual Dreams from My Father book ended up in the final form that it did.
1: In terms of the Barack Obama, your book really details his transformation. There's always this expression It's like money doesn't change you. It kind of amplifies who you are. Do you think this run changed him? Was he seeking change or is this just a natural process? I don't think you can be president unless you're calculating and you're making these chess moves. But what was the change that you're detailing and researching and seeing? I think who they are now bears almost no
0: resemblance to who they were in 2003. When Barack wins the Senate primary in March of 2004. He goes from being someone who could go to the grocery store and nobody except his neighbors would recognize him, to all of a sudden, most everyone in Chicago is recognizing him. And once you become a U.S. senator, he takes office in January of 2005, you've got 35, 50 people working for you. You've got a staff to manage. When Barrat was in the Illinois State Senate, he had like, 1.5, you know, staff members we could call upon. So it's a huge shift just to, to go into the U.S. Senate for it. But as you start hanging out with millionaires and a lot of the donor base that you have to recruit for a, a statewide U.S. Senate race is really wealthy people. That's a whole different world than who you're dealing with as a state senator who's representing a modest chunk of of Southside Chicago. And almost no one from Barack's political life in Illinois before 2003 was still in touch with him. I went and interviewed all of these people, almost without exception, they're really impressive, memorably impressive, wonderful people, dedicated people some of whom put literally years of their life into advancing Barack, he benefited from a phenomenal number of people, and those people don't feel that they've been remembered. There are a lot of bruised, wouldn't even sort of begin to get there. And I don't think that's automatically the case with a politician. John F. Kennedy, a presidency I know pretty well, from my civil rights work, there are some real downsides to John F. Kennedy, but his personal loyalty to people who were with him back before his political rise is quite striking. His oldest, closest friend was an openly gay man who lived with him in the White House in the early 1960s. At that time, that was quite a striking thing. And the transformation in the world in which Barack lives in and Michelle lives in now is just a world away from where they were in 2003 20 years ago.
1: It's only been what 6 years or so since the end of his his presidency. So it's not like it's super recent, but in the grand scheme of things it's fairly recent. When you think about presidents like Abraham Lincoln where you have centuries of of time between so maybe in 20 years from now how are people going to remember Obama? It's not going to be the same way that we're remembering him right at this moment in 2023 is that and it takes years to really see the effects of policies and, and even right now there's a lot of former obama people in the biden administration so they're still having an effect but in, tw- in a couple of decades how will people remember barack obama my guess and i'm, I'm using that word quite purposefully given where here
0: we are hardly in the middle of uh, biden presidency I think 40 years from now, the Biden presidency will probably be looked back upon as more consequential than the Obama presidency, whether or not Biden wins a second term. The war in Ukraine is the most important thing that's happened in my lifetime. I'm I'm over 70. I've got some criticisms of how slow we've been to give Ukraine everything that it needs, like F-16 fighter planes. But the Biden administration has done a superb job overall in investing in Ukraine and in realizing the just world historical importance of what Ukraine represents to democratic civilization. Back in 2014, we touched on this somewhat earlier, the Obama administration was too slow, too timid to realize how much of a danger Vladimir Putin posed. Ditto with China. Twenty-odd years ago, I wrote perhaps my best-known academic article, a law review piece called Mental Decrepitude on the U.S. Supreme Court. It's over 100 pages long. It traces the history of justices who stayed there, stayed on the court too long, who couldn't intellectually keep doing the job. So I'm very sensitive, given my own experience looking at the history of elderly justices, Uh, about uh, capacity going forward. Uh, But that problem aside, uh, the Biden administration has had to face up to uh, tougher challenges
1: uh, and and has done so pretty successfully uh, compared to Obama. You You interviewed Obama. Did he ever talk to you after he read your book? And if he did, what was his feedback? After my first meeting with Barack in the Oval Office, he
0: agreed to read the book in TypeScript And so he got the manuscript, everything but the epilogue, first ten chapters, and he had it in these big three-ring black binders that we all remember from high school and college. And so when I went back to the White House in October and December of 2016, each of those days we sat there in the president's dining room, the little room that's just off the Oval Office. He'd marked up the typescript and he'd page through it and would stop when he had some marginal comment or objection he wanted to voice. Now, we weren't recording those conversations. I was taking very detailed legal pad notes. So he had a chance to react to all of that. Hmm. Touching upon what we focused on earlier, he was not happy that I said flat out that dreams from my father is a work of, of historical fiction. And this is, I don't think, atypical of people. He'd spent a lot of time writing that, and he sort of wanted to believe the version he'd written rather than the version that actually happened. Now, those were very informative conversations for me, and I came away from them with the impression that the experience of the presidency had intensified Barack's identification as a black person. So much of the hostility. Bizarre hostility directed against Barack during his presidency from the far right, focused on his race, focused on the sort of otherness of his being this biracial, multicultural person. And I don't think Barack in 2008, 2009 was as self-consciously black as the man I was talking to in 2016. I think it was uh, a result, an impact uh, of the behavior of Donald Trump and a lot of these other crazies who targeted in, in such really, at many times, distasteful ways during the presidency. It was public record, even in the middle of 2016, that Michelle in particular was eager to get out of the White House, eager for the presidency to end. So I think in many respects, not only is it inherently draining and exhausting to be president, but that they didn't at all enjoy the intensity of the hostility that was focused on them, given that we look back to 2004 and that speech, as I mentioned earlier, where he was optimistically insisting that there's not a red America and a blue America, but his experience as president told him he was wrong There was a Red America, and it didn't like him.
1: I want to appreciate you for taking the time to join us today, David. I got two final questions for you. One, just where can people find you, get a hold of you? Is there any new project that you're working on? And then leave us with a final thought about Rising Star. All of my
0: writings, other than my books, are all on my personal webpage, davidgarrow.com. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them over the years. But now I'm over 70. I enjoy doing half a dozen book reviews a year on different topics. I continue to follow abortion law and abortion litigation very carefully. I think the fundamental lesson of Rising Star is that when someone decides they want to be a politician, that's a very different choice than being Martin Luther King. Dr. King had not wanted to be a public figure. He got drafted into leading the Montgomery bus boycott, and so King is a very, very unusual public figure because he did not put himself forward into the public eye. He was dragged into that position, and he never enjoyed it. He felt guilty about it. He kept dreaming of being able to step aside and, and not be the symbolic leader of the movement. In contrast, whether you're a Barack Obama, whether you're a Joe Biden, whether you're a Donald Trump, these are people who, for better or worse, want to be, need to be in the public eye. And that's a very important thing for all of us to remember.
1: Maybe that's the reason that Obama's hanging out with these celebrities. He identifies more as that than he does with the average person living in Chicago, at least at this point of his life. Thank you so much, David Garrow, for joining us in El Podcast. And you really feel like you know Obama after you read this book. I appreciate you spending nine years to write it, and I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed... Please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.